Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, everyone. Lovely to see you. So the last 13 years or so has been marked by a relentless war on large sections of the British working class and indeed the poorest elements of society. Much of that has come through an onslaught, of course, through the welfare state. George Osborne, now rehabilitated by our political and media class as some sort of sage statesman, was, remains the principal villain, architect of this uh, class war, uh, Notably, journalists, Labour MPs, including Ed Balls and uh, Yvette Cooper, recently attended his wedding. But he was the man who introduced everything from the bedroom tax to the two-child benefits limit, as well as, after the 2015 election, a £12 billion onslaught against Social Security. Now, there's lots of other factors which have clobbered some of the poorest elements in society, the longest squeeze in living standards of people's wages, that is, people's workers' wages, since the early uh, 19th century, the housing crisis, recently, of course, um, inflation. But the lot of the British poor under the Conservatives, a time of boom time for the richest elements of society, a record number of billionaires created during the pandemic, for example, which was a period of huge trauma for much of the rest of the population. That's what class war looks like. That's what it looks like in practical terms, where you get boom time for those at the top, including, of course, the rich donor base of the Conservatives, whilst the poorest elements of society have had their living conditions relentlessly attacked. And there are elements of that as well. Cuts have disproportionately fallen on the backs of women in this country and disproportionately on the backs of those from minority backgrounds. And we've seen this onslaught develop over many, many years. Now, you might think in that particular context, the Labour Party, a party, of course, founded to represent the working class in its broadest sense, those who work by hand or by brain, that the Labour Party, if it was founded to do anything, was to lift the conditions of the working class, not least its poorest sections, on the basis that the Conservatives and the Liberals existed at the beginning of the 20th century, doing a pretty fine job representing the bosses, the landlords, and the rich, wealthy, property elements of British society. So then we end up with a grotesque sight of a Labour Party, a Labour Party scuttling around shadow ministers to TV studios to hand out statements calling for support for Tory policies which drive toddlers into poverty. That's what we're talking about. The two-child limit, which has plunged uh, 250,000 women, uh, sorry, 250,000 children directly into poverty and another 800,000 further below the breadline. Um, on top of, for example, the likes of the bedroom tax, which the Labour Party is now also refusing to repeal, as well as the overall benefit cap, which has also driven huge numbers of people into poverty. The Labour Party 
tossing some of the poorest elements on of society or, or treating them as sacrificial lambs on the altar of so-called fiscal credibility. This is a nonsense. And we are going to take that nonsense apart on this show. Later on, we'll be talking to the brilliant economist James Meadway, taking apart the idea, which we've heard now, Labour, minutes, Labour shadow ministers saying there is no money left, literally repeating verbatim the arguments of George Osborne um, from 2010. Poverty itself exacts a huge economic and social cost as well as being inhumane. That's something we'll also be talking about as well. So in sum, the two major political parties, one of which now in government, the other very likely to be in government at the latest by 2025, united in suppressing the living standards of the poorest sections of society. And we're going to talk about what that actually means in practical terms. And um, if you're watching live, do you press like and subscribe? Or if I do you don't need to be watching live, whatever, whatever you're doing, please like press like and subscribe. Uh, we've started doing these 5 p.m. live shows on Wednesdays again, which also go out, of course, on Facebook and on the podcast. Um, and um, you can put uh, questions to the guests through Super Chat, which will also support the show. And I will thank everyone at the end. And you can support some pictures of God before slash Jones 84 to keep the show on the road. Now, I'm going to bring in Sarah Rees, who is the Deputy Director, Head of Research and Policy as well, at the UK Women's Budget Group. Hey, Sarah, how you doing? Hello, I'm good. Thank you. Just in terms of, I mean, I actually, I mentioned some of the gendered elements, of course, of, of what the onslaught on welfare, on the welfare state means. But if you were to give a kind of broad brush kind of picture of what's happened over the last 13 years in practical terms, um, in terms of the living standards of, of those both in work, um, because obviously many of those affected are people in working households who rely on the, the state topping up their low wages, disabled people, people out of work for whatever reason. What kind of broad brush strokes would you say has been the reality over the last 13 years under Conservative rule? Mm -hmm. Well, there, there has certainly been a, a decline in the living standards of, of the poorest in our uh, society uh, because of the policies and the cuts introduced uh, in the last uh, decade or, or 13 years. Uh, and, and, you know, I think the, the two-child limit policy is a really emblematic policy uh, of the punitive turn that our social security system took in the last um, decade or, or 13 years since the coalition government uh, took power. So there were no, not only um, cuts to the amounts of, of, of benefits that, that people were eligible and, and received, uh, which, of course, if you cut those, uh, you are taking money uh, out of people's pockets and their ability to face uh, the rising cost of living. But also there was um, certain elements uh, in terms of the design of certain policies, like the two-child limit, the benefit cap, uh, that were introduced that... Um, restricted uh, the eligibility to, to, to our social security system and also that made it conditional in certain, um, uh, to certain behaviors. So for instance, uh, there were more uh, stringent conditionality introduced uh, for when you could receive a certain benefit, like you had to uh, work for a, a certain amount of hours or you couldn't refuse work even when you were uh, the primary carer of a, of, a, of a young child, for instance. You know, there, there was this um, non-recognition of the uh, 
restrictions or limitations that people also face in other areas of their of, of their lives, including the fact that we have a very uh, expensive or an affordable uh, childcare system. So, and this was all done, these uh, punitive um, policies, uh, these cuts to uh, benefit amounts were all introduced in the name of balancing the books. So it was uh, introduced in a time of uh, when austerity was kind of the uh, the word of the day uh, and the uh, the rationale behind uh, these cuts and these, the introduction of, of these policies was to save money to the exchequer. Uh, and there was even a cap that was introduced uh, on how much money the exchequer could spend overall on our social security system. Now, I think there are two things worth noting here. And, uh, you know, one of them was that at the same time as these cuts to our social security system were introduced, the, the coalition government also introduced tax cuts. So uh, the balancing the books line was undermined by, by this uh, uh, cutting taxes as well. So money that was not going to the exchequer that could have gone. So this was effectively a very regressive policy. This was about, um, at the end of the day, taking money from uh, the pockets of the poorest in our uh, society, uh, which were mainly, uh, you know, um, also people experiencing uh, inequalities in, in other ways. So women, uh, people from ethnic minority backgrounds, disabled people, single parents, uh, mostly uh, single mothers, taking money from these uh, groups into the richest uh, in our society. So the balancing books line really didn't, doesn't really uh, <laughs> hold up when, when we look into it. And then the other thing I think worth noting is that it, this, this is something that doesn't work. These punitive policies, they don't work to, the, to what they intend to do. Uh, there are plenty of evidence that uh, punitive or stringent conditionality doesn't get people into good jobs. It doesn't get people into earning a, uh, a living that is sufficient to lift them out of poverty. Uh, it just it just traps them into this um, very often stressful situation of, of um, chasing uh, low low paid jobs, temporary jobs, just to not lose uh, access to their benefits. Mm. And then uh, again, taking the example of the two child limit doesn't get people into work. Uh, no impact on fertility. It just gets more children into poverty. Um, so, you know, it's it's these policies don't even um, work for the for the purposes that they were intended when they were introduced. And lastly, it, it doesn't save money because I think it's you know it's really important to think about this thing in a more holistic approach. So. Having people living in poverty, having children growing up in poverty, it has all sorts of negative impacts throughout their lives, including on extra costs to other public services. So you may be trying to save money on Social Security, but you will be adding costs to uh, our healthcare system or, you know, uh, justice system uh, in, in other services. So actually, uh, as, as you mentioned, um, if we were to remove the two-child limit policy, we would lift 250,000 children out of poverty immediately. And that would be saving 2.3 billion pounds 
uh, in in uh, societal costs, and that's nearly double what this what paying uh, uh, you know what, what removing the policy would actually cost the exchequer. So you, it's a false economy. It's a false saving that you are making when you're cutting Social Security. Because quite interesting, I mean, a recent study suggested that on its own terms, so the argument behind the two-child benefit limit is that it would either encourage those in work to take up more hours or those out of work to seek work. And on both those measures, it's failed. It didn't, it didn't yes. Do it, it yes, that's right. And there was also uh, a stated... Um, you know, a stated goal of of reducing fertility for those, you know, for those families that couldn't afford, uh, in other words, um, more children. And that has also failed because, you know, people make decisions around fertility and how many children they, they have for all sorts of reasons. And um, it, it, it <laughs> plenty of evidence show that it, it has had a minimal impact on fertility. It just means that the, the people, the, the children who, who are born, they, they live in poverty or they are thrown into into poverty because of this uh, policy. I find it quite interesting, that kind of judgmental view on larger families, which they're trying to tap into, which is always it's a bit age old prejudice that um, given at the same time, many Tory MPs are panicking about the collapsing birth rate in Britain. Mm -hmm. Miriam Cates, a Conservative MP, talks about how that is a the biggest crisis facing the country, because obviously you get an expanding older population who are retired a shrinking working population, so they're actually facing in two different directions about judge, ju the, ju the judgments they place on those who deem to be poor, mm -hmm. but at the same time panicking about falling birth rates and the cost that will actually put on society. It's interesting. Yes, yeah, so it's <laughs> it, 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 in, in, in many ways it, it, it doesn't make sense and it, it does... Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry, yeah, you're, you're cutting out a bit there, that's all. Let's see. Oh, you're back, you're back, you're back. Um, yeah, so th there is there is that that judgment about who, who is worthy of, of, of having children and in, in who is not, I suppose. Exactly, yeah. Um, I mean, in terms of um, Labour's recent statements, that this that their argument that for, for the interest of fiscal credibility, um, they can't make costed promises, um, which... You know, like, for example, abolishing the two-child limit on benefits. What's your response to that when they say, well, we've got to be fiscally responsible, therefore we can't commit to such policies? Well, I think, again, this this is, is taking a very narrow view of what is being fiscally responsible or what fiscal responsibility uh, means, because as, as we've, uh, as I've shown with, with figures that we've calculated, you know, <laughs> the, the impacts of this policy, the societal impacts and the impacts on all the public services that having the, these many children growing up in poverty have um, are greater than what removing that policy would cost the exchequer. Mm -hmm. they're, they're actually nearly twice uh, the amount. So it's, it's, I think, you know, fiscal responsibility needs to be taken on a, on a kind of more holistic uh, approach than just looking at at siloed um, policies or siloed um, elements of of public policy um, individually, um, because at the end of the day, what 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 we need is is for a strong economy, mm. uh, and for uh, you know strong public finances 
is a healthy population, a and well-educated population, um, and for that you really need to invest uh, in in people, and you can certainly have that uh, uh, with with children starving in policies that uh, have that uh, awful impact. Sarah, brilliant stuff. That really, really powerfully, I think, just sets out obviously the impact and why it's self-defeating a false economy, I suppose, which is the, the idea that you cut back on something in the, on the argument that you'll save, but actually you suffer longer, you suffer worse costs by, by yeah. those costs. Um, do check out everyone, um, whether you're watching or listening on the podcast, of course, UK Women's Budget Group and their brilliant research. Uh, but Sarah, thank you so, so much for joining us. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. Um, really, really great stuff. Um, Yes. Hello, everyone. If you're just joining us, do click on the YouTube link if you're watching on Facebook. I'm going to bring in James Meadway straight away, the brilliant economist. Also uh, does his own brilliant podcast called Macrodose. Do check that out. Uh, they do brilliant interviews and all sorts of work. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. How are you? Very well. I'm going to cheer us all up now with a good old interview from a Labour Front venture. Let's start with Lucy Power, shall we? Just for a little treat. And then I want your response. There are lots of things that he would like to do. There are lots of things that he would like uh, to reverse, but the economic reality uh, means that we just can't. That, that, uh, to coin a phrase, there just frankly is no money left. The, the cost of government borrowing, as inflation and interest rates rise, that cost of government borrowing is going up and up and up all the time. We've had COVID, Ukraine, the disastrous... Uh, mini budget of, of Liz Truss uh, last year. And so now we face this harsh economic reality that we're in today. That means that we, we just can't make promises that we can't afford uh, to keep. And that means some difficult choices, some difficult uh, issues and some difficult uh, policies that we would otherwise you know, like to do. There's no money left. She's there um, repeating verbatim a infamous note left by Liam Byrne, who was the former chief secretary to the Treasury under the last Labour government, um, where he wrote um, something like, sorry, there's no money left, which was then used by George Osborne um, and his coalition partners in 2010 to justify austerity on the basis that there, was, well, there wasn't any money left. Even Labour said it and they boasted about it, look what they did to the economy. Anyway, blah, blah. What's, your, what's your take on that from an economic perspective, from the perspective of an economist? Well, I mean, look, the first one is just you, you don't need to be, God knows, Malcolm Tucker or, or some expert in the dark arts of political communication to know it's a bad idea to literally repeat what your political enemies say about you. I mean, what, what Lucy Powell's probably just done with this is given a new lease of life to the Tory attack line from here until the election and also killed off Labour being able to talk about spending any money on anything else because the Tories will turn around and say, but you yourself said there is no money left. You can't afford to pay for it. I mean, it's just it's just unbelievable as a, as a, as a line to repeat. It's it's, it's bizarre, uh, frankly, to, to, to say this. So putting that aside in terms of the communications, the actual policy underneath this is just nonsense. It's completely nonsensical to say that in the sixth richest economy on the planet, that there is no money left. The basic problem is that the money's in the hands of people and not the ones who perhaps deserve it or need it. That's kind of the problem we're up against here. And if Labour want to talk about making tough choices, it's always so striking that these tough choices involve, in this case, hitting some of the most vulnerable people in society and not making a tough choice to go after some of the least vulnerable people who are the richest, who have done extremely well over the last few years. They could have made that tough choice. There was any number of options they could have gone for to find a bit more cash. Because bear in mind, by the way, 
the amount of money needed to get rid of the two child benefit cap is 1.3 billion pounds. Now, that's a lot on an individual basis. In terms of government spending, it's tiny. So it's not even a lot of money that they need to go and find to get that. Just a few tweaks here and there in the tax system at the top end will get you this. If you want to do something big, equalizing capital gains tax, the tax that you pay if you're selling your antiques or some stocks and shares, equalizing the rate you pay, mostly paid, overwhelmingly paid by rich people with the rate of income tax, that's about 16 billion pounds a year. They can make that tough choice if they wanted to, but they don't. They've gone for this one. So it's nonsense economics. Uh, it is, I think, as Jonathan Portis, former chief economist at the cabinet office, called it the economics of the kindergarten to talk about there being no money left and that we have to make tough choices like this. In fact, he did say that. In fact, I can whack that up here. Here we go. Jonathan Portis wrote, in a, wrote a piece for The Independent, the economics of the kindergarten, the idea we do not have money to spend um, around £1 billion pounds to help hundreds of thousands of kids living in deprivation and poverty is ridiculous. So another um, expert economist there who's just made it clear how absolutely absurd this position is. Let's actually hit, just to keep cheering everyone up, let's hear George Osborne back from the early, early years. Government. government faced the worst economic inheritance in modern history. The debts we were left threatened every job and public service in the country. But we have put the national interest first. We've made the tough choices. Sounds exactly like Labour's argument now. Their argument is we've got a terrible economic inheritance. There isn't any money left. And therefore, we're not going to do things like in reverse benefit cuts, which hammer poor people. What's the difference? I don't know. What is the difference? Well, the difference is that George Osborne uses this as an excuse to do what he wants. And Labour is sitting there going, saying, oh, well, it means we can't do anything we might want to do. We just have to wait for things to magically get better. And this is, by the way, I find this quite, it's, it's, it's getting offensive. If you start saying to people, after a miserable decade and a bit, if you think about what's actually happened to most people in this country over the last sort of decade or so, 13 years of the Conservatives in power, what's happened to your pay in real terms after inflation, coronavirus, austerity, you stack all of this up, the insecurity, soaring rents, all that and then you say to people, oh, it's OK, to fix any of this, we're going to have to wait for the economy to grow in a way that it just hasn't done for the last 13 years. But somehow it's not going to happen. And we're just going to expect you to wait that because we're in charge now and we kind of know what we're doing, although on current evidence, looking at this, they don't. The things are going to get better. And then once things are better, you can all have a better life. It's completely nonsensical. If you're in a crisis, the one thing you can learn from George Osborne is if, if you're in a crisis of some sort, even if it's something of a manufactured crisis, which is what he really had with debt in uh, 2010, you use that to make changes. And that's what he did. He introduced austerity. You don't sit there and say, oh, God, it's a crisis. We can't actually do anything until somehow or other things will get better. Because you know what? If you don't do anything, things aren't going to get better. This isn't how the world works. This isn't. And I think in some Labour advisors' heads, they think it is 1997. They go into office, they keep everything calm for a few years, and then it's all good. And it's like Tony Blair all over. The economy's growing. Everything's shipshaping the world. Everybody's going to be better off. That isn't the world we're in anymore. Very, very visibly, very obviously. Look at what's happening with extreme weather right the way across the world today. Climate change. Look at what's going on with the legacy of COVID. And I don't just mean the debt. I mean the fact you have long COVID, the strains in the NHS. It's just not that world anymore. You're going to have to do something. And if you're sitting there saying, we can't really do anything because the crisis is too big, what on earth is the point of you being in government? One of the, uh, Paddy McGill 
says UK PLC isn't a household, is it? We've been borrowing against Bank of England since 1600s. Where has all the where all the money where has all the money generated by Q went into assets? Yeah, it's just interesting to point this because Margaret Thatcher to popularise her economic philosophy often used the comparison with didn't she with between a household budget mm-hmm. and government spending. George Osborne also did that as well because it was a way of making you know like if you're in debt, you don't spend more money, you cut back. So then the government should do do that as well, and obviously that. That philosophy is now coming back with a vengeance, partly rekindled by the labourer. What, what's the response to that when people use that argument? Well, I think the, the best response we've had is actually what's happened in the last few years. Everybody has seen with their own eyes what happened during COVID when you just needed to find some money. Right? If you want to find some money, you can. The way that the government works, and the way that government spending works is fundamentally not like a household because basically you or I don't have a machine that can print money sitting in our front room. And the government kind of does. Now, it's not necessarily a good idea to simply fire the whole thing up. I mean, that's kind of what we did during COVID, fire the thing up, print some money effectively to help pay for all the costs there. But ultimately, a government can do that because it does have that machine. It gets a bit more complicated if you're in a situation like Britain where the problem isn't, even though we're starting to focus on this again, the problem isn't government spending, isn't government debt. It's the private sector and a weak private sector that doesn't produce growth, doesn't produce enough secure, well-paying job, paying jobs, doesn't produce all the decent things that capitalism is supposed to do, right? That hasn't happened in this country for a long period of time. If you want to fix the economy, you don't need to worry too much about what's going on with government debt and government deficit and all this sort of stuff over here. That's the kind of, that's the leftover bit. That's what happens if you get this bit of the economy wrong. If you keep getting it wrong, suddenly <laughs> government spending starts to look like a problem. You have to fix this bit over here. The private sector, the lack of investment, the lack of jobs right across the country, good, secure jobs, not insecure, rubbishy jobs, the lack of housing. These are all the big problems you might want to think about fixing, not focusing on the government balance sheet, which like every other big government and big uh, economy in the world has expanded hugely over the last few years because of coronavirus. You're fixating on this and you're not dealing with the real problem. That's it. That's the problem with this whole rhetoric. You look entirely the wrong direction when you start to think about economics like this. So without just essentially torturing everyone, I mean, this is a running theme with Labour's positioning. So let's just hear Rachel Reeves on BBC. What's your opinion on free school meals for children? But again, it's one of those things that I just can't see where the money is going to come from. So, I mean, we've had as well, um, yeah, Rachel Reid declaring that Labour may be unable to scrap the bedroom tax. That was a commitment of, even under Ed Miliband to scrap the bedroom tax mm-hmm. in 2015 and 2017 and 2019 and the child benefit cap as well. Here's a bit of my people, as people know, um, shadow welfare spokesperson um, John Flashworth caused the two-child benefit cap heinous. Um, but heinous, but they're, they're going to keep it. Um, in the shadow cabinet, Patrick McGrath reports uh, that not one shadow cabinet minister spoke out against party policy and that Jonathan Ashworth spoke in defence of the party's position and Pat McFadden and Lisa Nandy both made, made supportive contributions for the discussion and moved on. And the argument used by Jonathan Ashworth was, well, if we commit to repealing the uh, two-child benefit limit, then that means we'll have to also commit to repealing, or there'll be more demands to commit to repealing the bedroom tax and also then the £12 billion overall cut of spending that introduced by George Osborne. What's your just general take? I mean, that's the that's the argument they're now using. I mean, how awful. How awful. If we want to do one good thing, we might have to do other good things. 
I mean, it's, it's, it's a pathetic argument. I mean, it does express the political logic quite well, by the way. There's a certain part of what's going on here, which is deliberate expectations management, right? Labour, want an, Labour leadership wants an easy time in government, right? They want to get into office. They've got 20% lead in the polls, basically there because people don't want the Tories anymore. So they're going to win, most likely, and they want an easy time. And they'll have an easy time if people aren't making demands of them. So if they've already said, oh, we'll give this thing, and it opens up expectations they might be able to do something else. If people have a belief that the world might be different and better, even just a little bit, once Labour in power, they might have to deliver on that. That's difficult. It's much easier to not have a bunch of people making demands of you, raising expectations. In economics terms, we're back to the hard choices thing again. Yeah, you've got hard choices. The world, I mean, this is not just Britain, although we are pretty much uniquely badly off amongst the big developed economies now. We're doing really badly. I mean, you've got to sort of stress this point. It's a, something of a basket case by this point. It's getting to that way. But everybody has been hammered by rising inflation, rising interest rates. That is everywhere. Like the days that we had and we, that we wasted, we squandered this opportunity of incredibly low interest rates, very low inflation, didn't do anything with it. We did austerity instead because George Osborne th thought that was a good idea. Those days are gone. So things are tighter now. Things are going to be more difficult. So, yeah, there are hard choices. So why not make the hard choice to do something about massive wealth inequality uh, in this country? Why not make the hard choice to go after for example, simple things like equalising capital gains tax and income tax. Why not think about what a wealth tax that works might look like? Why not start to think about these things? These are the hard choices you might want to make, real hard choices that you can then use to deliver that 12 or 14 billion pounds you might look for on uh, welfare spending over here. It's kind of these are political choices is the real thing this comes down to. And what's happened over the last sort of few months, as interest rates have crept up and as inflation has proved really quite sticky, yeah, especially, but really everywhere else as well, the Labour Party looks like it's panicked and it's retreated to this position where it's just like, this is all really difficult. We're not going to fundamentally change anything. We don't want to make those hard choices. A great chunk of our programme and our promises up until now were predicated on low interest rates and low inflation. That's now gone. We don't want to confront or deal with the situation. It's, it's not great. And, if it, it, and it could well get a lot worse between now and the election unless there's some serious pressure applied to them to, to shift this. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I mean, it is interesting that term hard choices, which Keir Starmer and others have been using because they're redefining, they're defining its mean, essentially. Um, policies which hurt poor people because that causes backlash amongst people who don't like child poverty <laughs> that's that's their definite that's why that's how they're defining it they're saying us not reversing benefit cuts which hurt those in 
children in child poverty will upset people who don't like child poverty. Therefore, it's a hard choice because we've upset them. When an actual hard choice would obviously be increasing taxes on rich people who will then wail and squeal about it and stamp their feet and have a have a meltdown and the right wing media will scream about it, which mm-hmm. is what the Labour Party is scared about. Um, so I mean, is it, is it, I mean, you know, is, the issue is, isn't it, that Labour have made a political choice? They often say, mm-hmm. kind of buzzword on the Labour right, it's the choice just we make, but they made a choice that keeping taxes low on rich people is more important yep. than lifting children out of poverty. Yes. This is exactly it. Uh, exactly it, and and this isn't. You know, it's not just me saying this. It's uh, you know, it's pretty. It's a growing consensus around this now that look, we are going to have to increase taxes to help cover the costs and pay for and have a welfare state that still works. And the question really is, who's going to pay for that? Now, I think, given what's happened to inequality in this country for a long period of time, in particular over the last sort of ten years or so. You would say, why don't we, if we need to do this, go to where the money is? And that means go to the top end of society, go to the rich and define that as a top 1%, 0.1%, whatever you want, and find some way to get that money and spend it on the things that we want to do. Ba- build a welfare state that works. Do the promises that at some point Starmer himself and various other Labour front benches were making about you know what, what this might look like. Okay, that's what you do. That's your choice. Now, that is tougher, exactly as you say, than just sort of saying, okay, we're not really going to do anything. Right, because that's a pretty easy choice, really. And there's a certain sense in which hard choice here means one I might feel personally a bit guilty about. I don't think people feel particularly good saying, "Ah, oh, we're going to keep you know ten percent of children condemned to poverty uh, by not getting rid of the the two child uh, benefit cap." But that's the choice you could make. There are always options in this. And what's so worrying here, I think, if we start to look into the future, is you have a Labour Party that's arriving in power, committed to doing as little as possible. And there are, you know, this is going to be a difficult set of economic circumstances. Things are not realistically going to get much better. The tensions in society build up around this. You're going to have a large number of disappointed people out there. We do have a radical right that is getting organised and forming itself and building an infrastructure. There are these forces appearing in society. You can start to draw a bleak prospect for the whole country if Labour doesn't rise to the occasion. And on this showing, they're just not doing that. I mean, on that, um, Stephen Calder says, doing the same thing as the Tories, expecting a different result is a sign of madness. We need a government that will make the right choices. But Tad Gamble makes an interesting choice linked to what you just said there as well. The worst excess of the Catholic system of the 1800s was reduced by social democracy. Current Labour doesn't seem to stand this basic point. I think that's the point, which is Thatcherism from the late 70s onwards sought to unwind the social democratic consensus established after World War II by Clement Attlee's Labour government. And we're now just seeing, after the second wave of Toryism in that period, the kind of harsh realities of the restoration of capitalism red in in tooth and claw. And if a Labour government then comes to power without having the same determination as the 945 Labour government, then what happens? Because, I mean, you know, look, I'll just give you just a quick just summary here of where Labour are at at the moment in terms of if anyone thinks there's Starmer mania is driving Labour's lead. So uh, um, Keir Starmer's favourability with YouGov he's, uh, has gone down by minus eight in the last showing. So he's on 54% have an unfavourable view of him. 32% have a favourable view on him. In terms of trustworthiness of the Labour Party, that's gone down Again, trustworthy, down by three points to 21%. So just over a fifth of the population think the Labour Party is trustworthy. Um, over four, So 41% think untrustworthy and 38% are sitting on the fence. The point I'm making is he doesn't actually have a lot of political capital because he's not popular. 
There's no enthusiasm behind Keir Starmer. He is regarded increasingly as untrustworthy because he made a series of pledges mm-hmm. and you turned them on in one of the greatest acts of political dishonesty in the history, I would say, of British democracy. I'd love to know, just in terms of such... Tony Blair did not stand on a Benite prospectus in 1994 in an effort to win the Labour leadership. He didn't say that we're going to be like Tony Benn, but more mm. competent. That's not what he said. He made it clear which direction he was heading. And he didn't say, fine, I'm going to end up doing what he did in 2005 and start privatising the NHS. But he started clearly making it clear what wing of the Labour Party he was actually from. Kirstama has been entirely deceitful, hasn't built up any enthusiasm. He doesn't have the personal charisma and charm that early Blair had. Um, as well, that it, however much that matters, I think it does matter a little bit. Um, I mean, that's the issue. So basically, you know, it's not 1997 when the mm-hmm. economy was growing, living standards are going up in an unsustainable way, but nonetheless, it's a terrible social situation. The leadership isn't popular, they're winning by default, and they're not committing to reverse these massive acute injustices the Tories are responsible for. How's that going to end up? It doesn't look, doesn't look great, does it? No, not at all. <laughs> not even at all. And, and look, the thing that hangs over all of this, not just here, although, like I say, I think Britain's kind of worst place out of the big developed economies, it hangs over everybody. It's the ecological crisis. This is a massive, immovable fact in how we live our lives now. And it's not just we need a Green New Deal to try and mitigate climate change and reduce carbon emissions. We have to think of ways of how we cope with this. What are we going to do with extreme heat hitting us every summer? You know, there's a proposal in Germany to introduce siestas, to reduce working hours. Why aren't we getting this kind of thinking from the Labour Party here? Why aren't they being creative about what you do with a crisis rather than going like, it's all going to turn out like 1997 again? It's madness. There isn't a climate scientist out there who'll tell you, oh, it's all going to be stable and everything's going to be good into the future. We need a government that can deal with that crisis and protect people from it and instead we got one that just says oh god government debt big can't do anything it's it's just pathetic really is the word matthew faustini asked so much for labor doing biodynamics and i suppose what that puts you is expectations were very low about joe biden when he became the candidate but he exceeded i would say expectations even though actually he had the problems of a senate where two conservative democrats kind of had him over a barrel and curtailed those ambitions. But when I look at Joe Biden's tweets, for example, or what his public statements on taxing the rich, etc., they come across as significantly to the left of anything Keir Starmer would ever say. What do you think about Biden? I mean, is there any chance you think of Labour surprising uh, like Biden did in some ways? What do you think? No, I don't think so. Um, the the reason look, there's a lot of there's been a bit of rhetoric around this, and and actually this is the sort of the slight tragedy in some ways. That Rachel Reeves went to Washington to do a speech about oh we want Bidenomics in Britain. Pretty good analysis of how the world economy is working, where we might fit into this. Do they have anything that matches up to that? No, not at all. Because what's Biden done? He's actually gone out and spent a lot of money. The Inflation Reduction Act, strange name, but it's a big climate change program. Uh, the Semiconductors and Chips Act to build loads and loads of semiconductor factories. Lots of promises. Some delivered, some not around, you know, childcare, improving wages. And actually, some of this is starting to happen. And his rhetoric is even more ahead of that in terms of, you know, the left sort of posing that he's putting on. Also, he made an effort very deliberately to get the left of the Democrats and even beyond on board, developing policy, burning they're standing with him. He gets him out to, you know, say, look, we're going to cancel student debt, this sort of thing. Right. Does that, does Starmer do that? No, he doesn't. It's a default setting. The default setting that you're getting with Star is default setting to the British state machine, in particular Treasury. And that default setting is do as little as possible. Spend nothing, borrow nothing. That's it. Just sit there and everything will just blow over. It isn't. It isn't going to happen. So what you need, if you're serious about doing Bidenomics, is the push right now to break through that institutional setting, to deliver the political weight behind it, to mobilize 
a group of supporters, lots and lots of different institutions across civil society uh, in Britain. You've got trade unions on board. You've got NGOs. You've got charities all saying, yeah, this is good. This is the program for government in difficult times. They're not doing this. They're not doing any of these things. So how are they going to deliver anything in government? And frankly, I think they're losing friends at this point. You know, this is a political point, not an economic point at all. But once you start saying, OK, well, you know, Neil Lawson, for instance, former advisor to Gordon Brown, is now going to be booted out of the Labour Party. You know, you're getting rid of your friends, you're getting rid of people close to you. Who's going to be left when you're stuck in government and nothing is getting better and everything is getting worse and you need to do something radical and you can't because you got rid of all your friends. You've got no support beyond that point. Well, actually, what's quite funny is that essentially barring candidates, if they have the same political positions as Keir Starmer did in his Labour leadership campaign, what they're doing is they're essentially barring people who believe in things like public ownership, higher tax on the rich, scrapping tuition fees, just all of the various perversing benefit costs, all the various things that Keir Starmer said were his pledges, i.e. cast iron promises, that's what that means. Mm-hmm. And that's where we end up. That's, that's obviously the politics of the... I mean, just finally, just finally, I mean, where, I mean, it feels a bit bleak talking about in, in these terms. What do you say? I mean, so in my head, I agree with you. Something's got to give, but I guess kind of what, where, what's your general thought? You don't have to be, it doesn't have to be economist hat on. What's your general sense of how things have to give? Because at the moment you have a country in a catastrophic state. It's not 997, it's more like mm-hmm. 1974, but worse in various ways. So it's a country in a really, really catastrophic state. The Labour Party has no interest in fixing the underlying structural problems which are causing the crises that we face, they're likely to win by default. But I don't know. What do you think? Where what what for the what for people like us on the left? Where do we what do we what do we do? Well, it's, it's 1974. I mean, that's a decent comparison. This this period of quite intense crisis of the institutions, but with climate change and without a strong trade union movement, right? Because that's your obvious defence in the crisis is a strong trade union movement. One of the things we could be doing and should be doing is trying to rebuild that union movement during this crisis that is the de- that is a fundamental defense that you might be able to have against what's happening and that does include what's happening with climate change in lots and lots of different ways you know we can think of part of what's happening with inflation when you see food inflation still really high that's because harvests are failing across the world there's a great chunk of it that's driven by this so you have to fight uh when you think about fighting for improved wages, you're also doing something about this ecological crisis that, that we're in. But in terms of where this could go, I, you know, it's, it's hard not to end up with a fairly bleak perspective on this. If you have a Labour Party that's likely to win and says it's not going to do anything, and you know that even, you know, even though they're desperately trying to manage expectations downwards, you end up with a lot of frustrated, angry people on the other side of Keir Starmer winning in like the shortest honeymoon in British political history. Where, where is that anger going to go? Well, what are people going to do with this? Who, what are the social forces? What are the political parties? Who's going to try and build out, and, out of this and capitalise out of this? It starts to look extremely bleak at this point in time. I think one of the things that the left needs to do in particular, I'll probably say, is, look, we, we have to sort of get over going on about what happened 2015 to 2019 and start thinking about what is the programme? What are the list of demands? What are the absolute minimum things we do in this economic, social and ecological crisis that's now bearing down on us, what are those things that we can start to apply pressure wherever we can to a Labour MP, to Labour leadership, to trade union leaderships, all of these different social forces say, this is the minimum things we can expect. This is what we want the programme to look like. This is how we protect people. If we can start to get that together, and that means drawing on people that we've been rowing with for the last few years about, you know, did you vote for Keir Starmer or whatever, it doesn't really matter. If you can start to talk to those people and assemble something that looks like this, Maybe we'd, maybe we'd have a chance. Maybe we'd have something that we could take into what I think is otherwise going to be a very bleak, rather desperate few years. 
Here, here. Very well put, I think. Um, James, as ever, brilliant, brilliant stuff. And do check out, by the way, everyone, Macrodose. Just type in Macrodose, James Moodway. I think Macrodose will probably find it. Um, for his brilliant podcast with all these insights. So make sure you do support it. James, thank you so much. And I'll speak to you soon. Thank you. No worries. Cheers. See you in a bit. Bye. Um, yeah, just some super chats uh, as well. David Bowater, Labour basically discount Tories now. Is it anyway challenging Labour enough? And forcing it towards more progressive parties, left-wing independence of the Greece. have to say, I did, it's quite striking. I actually did put this, uh, I messaged um, a Labour shadow uh, cabinet minister, who I won't name. Um, but I just, I made the point I made to them, if I just bring it up, what I said, uh, just linked to this, um, was, um, hold on, just case my WhatsApp here, Um yeah, I said for years, anti-Corbyn MPs howled and stamped their feet about being called right-wing. They promised that if Corbyn was gone, they wouldn't end up being tory light. And it was a disgraceful slur to suggest otherwise. Now you're pledging to protect George Osborne's policy of high-income child poverty. I don't think any faction in British politics is as deceitful as the Labour right. It puts the Lib Dems to shame. I stand by what I said. Um, but it's true. I mean, I mean, it's just utterly... Di- they went, how oh, dare you call us right-wing? We get called right-wing by mean people on the internet. It's basically violence. It's a hate crime. Being a Blairite is a protected characteristic. How dare you? How dare you say this? And then a few a few years later, we are now supporting George Osborne's policy of driving hundreds of thousands of children into poverty. There's no money left. What? Oh, what? You want? You think a Labour government should reduce child poverty and then ask rich people to pay money for it? <laughs> Suckers! No, we're we're doing one-on-one breakfast for Tory donors at the moment. What, you want us to tell them we're going to increase their taxes so we can lift some kids out of poverty? Are you high? So that's where we've ended up with them. Um, lovely bunch of people. Yeah, I mean, they just lied their way back to the Labour leadership. They were like little little crocodiles pretending to be sweet little puppies going, oh, no, we're going to be... We lo- we're lefties now. We are really left. We love it all. We're going to... Be- Public ownership, yes. Yeah, obviously. Have you seen the state of the utilities? Workers' rights will be in the picket lines. Hiking taxes on the rich. Oh, where do we? When do we start? Um, and then they um, they uh, worm their way in, having lied. And then they're like, "We're now purging all left-wing people, and we're going to drive. We're going to keep children in poverty and make sure rich people don't pay any taxes." Yeah, it's been a real wild, wild ride. Um, well, we'll get vengeance. I'm sorry, you can't have a project that dishonest. I know they're getting absolutely wanked out, getting wanked off by the media. Apologies for the language. Um, I mean, I was watching, a, I'm not going to name it, but broadcast correspondent talking about Keir Starmer's um, pulled kind of a, a policy of um, uh, driving uh, six-year-olds into starvation. Um, and I was listening to them. I was like, you just sound like a press officer for the Labour leadership. Like, there's no scrutiny or, or critique here. It is literally just um, um, on the terms of any. There's nothing a Labour spokesperson could could pro- possibly have a problem with anything you said. I know they're getting all that, but something is going to give because you have actually a large number of people, particularly under forty, been hammered by a broken economic system, um, and uh, a lot of them naturally very progressive in a way that previous younger generations weren't. That's not what the evidence shows. Millennials are the first generation not to move to the right. Uh, Financial Times, the detailed study about this. That's true here and the United States. Not true everywhere, but it's true in, in, in these countries. Um, and um, two years into a Labour government, they're going to go, my life's still pretty shit, actually, guys. What happened there? Um, and I think that's when problems are emerged. The issue is, as James says, there's obviously the, the spectre of 
pretty sinister and dangerous forces. You know, I would note that some of the young people in Spain who were voting for Podemos, a left-wing formation, are now voting for Vox, which is a far-right formation. It's not great. I don't think a huge number of them, but there are, there are some of them doing that. So I think we have to be aware of that. Um, I think the left's infrastructure and sense of kind of vision for society is a lot stronger than it was after previous defeats. Um, I don't think our opponents have any ideas. I think that's very clear. I don't think the Labour leadership has the faintest sense of imagination about what they're going to do with society. Um, they just spend their time now, you know, they're doing a kind of like, let's torture puppies on camera and just see how much the those lefties squeal about it. And the more they squeal, the better. And that's, you know, it's not actually before they suit me or something for suggesting they strangle puppies. They don't do that publicly. Um, uh, what I mean is that the, the, the whole shtick at the moment is the more people like me uh, go, um, well, this is t- how dare Labour drive children to poverty. They're like, yes, great. We've got, we got another... We've got a lefty complaining about kids being driven into poverty by our policy. They think that's a win. They're like, you know, the more the left squealing. If the left don't like something, then it's good. Up to and including driving six-year-olds into poverty uh, so their parents have to skip hot meals to feed them. That's what we're talking about. Um, They are amoral. They don't have principles. They have vision. They... um, just want power for the hell of it. That's what's going to happen. I think a lot of people can realise when they take over that they are, you know, a heartless, dead-behind-the-eyes faction. You don't believe in anything. They're not anchored in anything. They're not rooted in anything. Um, and so I suppose, you know, what what next? I do think what Dave Rata says here, I think they've been helped by the Green Party not really getting their act together, if I'm honest. I don't think the Green Party have very adeptly pitched themselves as a left of centre party for disillusioned Labour voters, but they are nonetheless, and the local elections did very well despite that. So, you know, they are winning people over on that basis. But you can see in council elections, for example, people purged by the Labour Party winning stonking majorities. The latest was in Newham. There's one in you know, Merseyside, other places. You can also see it with Jamie Driscoll, who was who is the who was the Labour North of Tyne mayor stopped, blocked from standing um, from members being able to decide whether they wanted him as the northeast mayor. Um, and he's now raised about £100,000 in the space of about 24 hours or 48 hours um, in his campaign. So I do think you're already getting these gre- those, you know, shoots. And he's not even in power. I mean, that's the thing. You're already getting this kind of groundswell of anti-Starmerism, of people who are actually fed up of the Labour leadership. And they're not even in power doing things. That did not happen to Blair. So I think that's quite striking. So I think, yes, definitely keep an eye on all of that. Uh, Kieran Buckley, that's very sweet. Keep up the great work. Explosion of Cook Toys, I mean Labour. Well, right back at you. We've got to expose both of them. And people, I get these starmarks. Oh, you never challenged the Tories. Most of my videos are talking about the Tories. They are in government after all. But the Labour leadership, the Labour, as far as I'm concerned, Labour is almost certainly going to win the next election. They are the government waiting. And damn right, we're going to scrutinise them now. Damn right, we're going to kick up a fuss and try and put pressure on them now. Um, you get these people saying, oh, wait till Labour's in power and then and then scrutinise them. Wait, just shut up now. Yeah, it's not really how democracy works, that. Um, you've got leverage before an election. If you win a mandate on the basis of what, like, the, the, the crappiest possible manifesto imaginable, um, you, our leverage is, is, you could, is, is not as great. Obviously, when Labour uh, is so, so seeking people's votes, that's when we have more power clearly um so 
yeah, we've all got to expose both of them. As I've said, Labour's going to, I think, win the next election. If a, if a child is driven into poverty uh, by a Labour government, that doesn't make any difference to them, whether it was a Labour party. Or, whether it's a Labour party that goes, but we care about ch child poverty, and that makes us different from the Tories. They don't care. They do this for ideological reasons. We do it because, you know, reasons. What The, the facts, the end point is the same. It's a child driven in poverty. It's a mum a mum and a dad skipping hot meals. It's them not going on school trips. It's kids growing up in overcrowded homes. You know, these are lived consequences that people suffer. And you get these Starmer loyalists who really have exposed themselves for believing in absolutely nothing. I mean, I find this absolutely astonishing. You look now on, um, I look on social media, these Starmer, Starmer rights wailing in my mentions Literally, and it, it, you know, I often joke that if the Labour leadership came up with a policy of killing off the firstborn, these people would go, we need to do this for political and economic credibility, guys. And clearly, the Labour leadership isn't actually going to adopt King Herod's position. But they did come up with a policy of supporting George Osborne's policy of driving kids into poverty. And these Starmer lot, you'd, you'd think a lot of them might go... That is a bit much. We have always argued that, you know, lefties are idealistic and they're stopping um, a Labour government, however flawed, coming into power, which will actually help the poorest in society. And this is the way to do it. Well, they lost that argument. And now they're still going, well, we need to we need to we need the starvation, the starve the children policy in order to win an election. And then you kind of think, well, what are you winning an election for? Literally, if a Labour Party cannot commit because that policy that two-child limit is the what the cheapest and quickest way of dragging children out of poverty in one full swoop if you want it and the lowest hanging fruit that's that's it that's the one you take and they've said they've ruled it out so how on earth can they commit in any meaningful way to reducing child poverty and still these time rights are like well you, why don't you join the Tories if you don't like Labour supporting Tory policies of driving kids into poverty Tory enabler we're the Tory enablers. We're the Tory enablers because we don't think Labour should support Tory policies of driving kids into poverty. I mean, just a political project with no heart or soul, is it? It's just barren. Like, you have to be morally bankrupt to think to yourself, I'm going to go on social media and defend Labour for supporting George Osborne's policy of driving hundreds of thousands of kids into poverty. Literally, what, I mean, what is in here? Like, do you have any heart or soul? Anyway. Had my little rant there, haven't I? Um, anyway, um, we've got lots of videos coming up. Uh, I'm going to Germany next uh, week, but I'm still working, so I'll do a video every day. Um, so I will see you tomorrow, as ever, with another video. I'm going to do some more interviews. I've been lacking on that front. Um, just an update on my book, The Alternative and How We Build It, which I've been working on, and doing the editing process now, so hopefully that will be out next year. Um, and I will, yeah, I'll speak to you soon. Sorry, I, I just feel depressed, so I didn't really know how to just end it there. Uh, do press like and subscribe. Uh, if you're listening on the podcast, hello, as ever. Um, and um, do support us on patreon.com for slash to keep the show on the road, because I don't know what I'm doing. And I will see you all soon. Lots of love. Bye. Oh, hold on. Did I? Oh, no, sorry. I was supposed to say something else. Yes, sorry. Before I go, so I've just been told off quite correctly. 
because I didn't say thank you to everyone who did Super Chat. Sorry. So I just got told off there. Stephen Calder, Kieran Buckley, Matthew Faustini, David Bowater, and Paddy McGill. Uh, thank you so, so much uh, for your brilliant, brilliant contributions. I'll see you next week. Uh, I think next week. Yes, next week, Friday. Fi sorry, Wednesday, 5 p.m. There we go. Lots of love. See you soon. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.